Well, tonight we're going to finish off our third message in this series that I've entitled Real ID, Discovering Who You Are in Christ. And tonight we're going to be looking at when can you start your purpose in Christ. Uh, We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But we've looked so far in this series, first of all, we looked week one, your position in Christ, and we talked about how we're no longer fugitives, but we've been reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then secondly, we talked about the second week, we focused in on Romans chapter 8, and we looked at our potential in Christ uh, being possible. And then tonight we want to look at your purpose in Christ found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And I've entitled this message, When Can You Start? We've been uh, uh, really in this series to show us who we are in Christ. A lot of times Christians have issues in their lives, and they're not growing the way they should. They're not being uh, built up in their faith the way they should. They're being discouraged. And a lot of times it comes from the factor that they don't understand who they are in Christ. So we wanted to take a couple weeks and rediscover these old truths. And so today we're going to be looking at our purpose in Christ. And there's a passage we looked at before in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We know these verses well. um, That talks about that we are um, saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a uh, gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we want to look at the next verse in that uh, section there, in verse 10. And in verse 10, Paul writes, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We just want to focus on that verse tonight in a couple different ways. Now, although works, good works, have no part in saving us, they have no part in us gaining salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out our faith, living out our salvation. Uh, No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. And that's very important to understand. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You don't do good works to become a disciple of Christ, but good works prove that our discipleship is genuine. It doesn't bring discipleship, but it proves that it's genuine. When God's people do good deeds, they bear fruit for his kingdom and bring glory to his name. And the Bible has much to say about works in general. We want to look at some verses before we get into our outline tonight. Uh, It speaks of the works of the law, which obviously uh, maybe some of them are good, but they cannot save a person. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You couldn't keep enough commandments to save you, let alone the ten. And so we understand that works is not a means to our salvation. Works is the result of our salvation. Well, the Bible speaks of different kinds of works. One is dead works. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So there is a, a work that you can do that is considered by the Word of God to be dead. Uh, Sometimes it refers to works or deeds or darkness of the flesh, which are inherently evil. Romans chapter 13, verse 12 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works, what's it say, of darkness. 
and put on the armor of light. Or in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 19 to 21, it talks about both uh, the, in, in Galatians, it talks about the works of the, the flesh and the, the fruit of the spirit, right? So you have two different kind of works being produced. But look at what it says in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, they're plainly seen. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not an exhaustive list. It just gives you a flavor of what works of the flesh are like. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are are works that will not benefit you for eternity. Or in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's obviously talking to believers. We have no part to be uh, taken in, in works of the darkness. All of those works are done in man's own strength. And they have nothing to do with salvation whatsoever. Before we can ever do anything good, any good work for the Lord, he has to do a good work in us. It's by God's grace. It's made effective through our faith that he gives us. And we become his, the Bible says there, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, it's important for believers to understand that God has ordained that we then live lives of good works. Our lives should be full of good works as believers, works done in his power for his glory. John points this out in his gospel in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. We're very familiar with this passage. It says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. That word abide means to remain. Set your house up. Make it your home. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The idea is nothing good. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, that's the whole context of the verse we read previously. And so it's important that in our lives we see evidence that we're connected to the vine, that that God is working out a fruit in our lives. If you took a fruit tree in your backyard and you cut a limb off that had maybe some oranges on it, and you took that limb and you just shoved it in a planting pot and said, well, I'm going to grow another tree. Guess what? It's not going to work. Eventually, the leaves on that branch are going to dry up. The fruit's going to dry up. The branch is going to become brittle. It's going to die. Why? Because it's not connected to the main source of nutrient. And we have to be reminded that As believers, we are connected to Christ. We need to abide in Christ. And by the way, that's a grafting, that's a connection that the Lord makes when he saves you. And we don't have to fear that somehow we're going to be separated from God. The Bible says that what shall separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing. And he goes through a whole list of things Paul does. And so, as believers, when we put our faith, our trust in Christ... It is for time and all eternity. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, Paul addresses the Corinthian believers. And he basically says there, hey, there's an abundance of good works, of good deeds in your church. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, it's, it's important for us 
to realize that God has works for us to do. He wants us to abound in all those things. And even as messed up as we're finding out in our studies on Sundays, the Corinthian church was, they still did some good works. God still was working through them. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.17, he instructed them that the believer is equipped for every good work. All scripture says is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We know that verse well. And then it says this in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You could say for every good work that God prepared beforehand for him to do. God will never call you to do something he hasn't equipped you to do. Now, you may feel (laughs) ill-equipped. You may not feel confident in what God has called you to do. And sometimes he doesn't want you to feel that confident. He wants you to feel dependent upon him. But by faith, we're going to obey what God has called us to do, knowing that he will provide what we need. He has equipped us for all these works that he's called us to do. And Christ died to bring himself a people. It says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, I love this section, zealous for good works. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now that doesn't mean that all people will be saved. That just means that, you know what? If any people is going to be saved, it's going to be through Christ. There's not another path for a group of another kind of people. Everybody in the world, if they're going to be saved, they have to come to faith in Christ Jesus. Is everyone going to be saved? Obviously not. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, here it is, who are zealous for good works. Let me ask you a question. Are you zealous for good works in your Christian walk? Do you wake up every day saying, boy, God, how are you going to use me today? What word of encouragement do you want me to speak to somebody? What kind action do you want me to do? Allow your good works that you prepared beforehand for me to do to be clear to me. That should be our attitude. And even... This is the work of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 12, Therefore, my beloved, verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, excuse me, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, then he says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. Oh, does that mean you work for your salvation? No. He's saying just allow those good works that God prepared beforehand to flow out of your life. Work it out with fear and trembling. And then he says this in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. You're not doing these good works. You don't have the right to pat yourself on the head and say, boy, well done. Boy, that was a wonderful sermon. You did so good. No. It's God working through you. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And see, Paul's message there to the Philippians is to believers. And they had experienced salvation probably most likely years before he wrote them this letter. See, he's not showing them how to be saved, but he's showing them how they were saved in order to convince them that the power that saved them is the same power that keeps them. A lot of believers don't understand that. They get saved and they believe Jesus can wipe away all their sin and save their eternal soul and they're filled with joy. And then something happens in their Christian life and they begin to doubt God and they cower in the corner in fear. That's not faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. And we need to understand that that same faith that saved us is the same faith that keeps us going. It's the same power. 
He holds us in the, the palm of his hand. Nothing can touch us unless God permits it in Christ Jesus. And if God permits it, he must have a good purpose. He must have a good reason. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever it may produce in our lives that way. It may not be fun to endure some of the things that God allows in our lives at times. But you know what? He has a purpose for it. And just as they already had been given everything necessary for salvation. When you're saved, God gives you everything you need to live out this Christian life. They also had been given everything necessary for faithfully living that saved life. See, God doesn't just save us at one point in time and say, okay, here, I gave you everything to be saved, but the rest is on you. Good luck. <laughs> no. He continues to provide everything. That's why the Bible speaks of Jesus as being our all-sufficient Savior. We are sufficient for all things in Christ Jesus. And the greatest proof proof of a Christian's divine empowerment really is his own salvation and the resulting good works that God produces in and through him. That's how people can look back and say, wow, that person has really changed. Something's happened to them. And those good works should be expected because God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, can you imagine Jesus inviting you over for dinner? And before you get to the dinner, you're worried maybe Jesus won't have dinner ready. Or maybe he wouldn't have the food to serve. You wouldn't worry about that. Why? Because he's God. You know, even if he had to snap his fingers and provide a wonderful meal for you. I mean, he's God. He could do whatever. If he says that he's going to have dinner on the plate when you get there, trust me, dinner's going to be on the plate when you get there. And that is an important aspect of the Christian life that sometimes we forget. That same power that saves us is the same power that sustains us and keeps us saved. That's why James says that faith is illegitimate. It's dead if works are not present. See, a lot of people get confused between Paul and James, and they think that somehow they're, they're competing in their theologies, and really they're not. They're really complementing one another. When Paul says you're, you're saved by grace through faith, that's true. But when James says, hey, if you're saying you're saved and you don't have any good works to show, guess what? Your faith is probably not legitimate. It's probably not real. That's why he says in James chapter 2, verses 17 to 26, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. But remember, even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he uses an a testament, Old Testament example here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. People say, well, how are people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved the same way we're saved, by faith. They were looking forward to a savior. We look back to the cross. But they still needed to be reconciled to God by faith. They still needed to be granted righteousness they had to have righteousness counted to their account why because they had no righteousness they were sinners just like we are sinners and then he gives another example verse 24 you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone and in the same way was not rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. You know, I know a lot of people that have been coming to church for a long time. 
and you look at their life and there's no works. There's nothing they're doing for the service of their Savior. There's nothing they're doing that God is actively working through them. And you wonder, boy, is their faith legitimate? You want to say, hey, you know what? You need to get busy for the Lord. God wants to do, God has prepared works for you to do. There's not, no such thing as a Christian spectator. That's the totally opposite of what Scripture says. When God saves you, He chooses to use you for His glory and for His kingdom. And He's gifted each and every one of us in a myriad of ways for that purpose. And He's equipped us, fully equipped us, to do what He has called us to do. And it's out of an act of obedience that we step out in faith. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I want to see works produced through me by your Spirit. So today, as we wrap up this idea of who you are in Christ, that was all introduction, by the way. Let's look at how your real ID in Jesus comes to life as you seek to fulfill the purpose that God has for you. Here are three simple things to remember. We'll go over these quickly. It's not going to be long. First of all, you are God's work in progress. We've talked about in the previous messages how you're a new creation in Christ. God has made you new. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but through him you've been given new life, the Bible says. Uh, Paul says it this way, the old has passed away and all things have become new. You are God's creation. And so you're no longer held fugitive. You're no longer a fugitive from God, but now you're his friend. And so rather than running from God, you run to God. You pursue God. You're God's new creation. Well, here in the text, it says that we are his workmanship. That word workmanship, poema in the Greek language, the original language, that's the word we get the English word poem from. It's a piece of literary workmanship. See, we're not something that God has just kind of absentmindedly thrown together and cast down here on earth. But before time even began, God designed us, the Bible says, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It tells us that in Romans 8.29. We looked at that the first week. So it's God that's doing this work. We're a work in progress. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he says, I am confident of this very thing. In other words, he's looking at all the evidence and he says, boy, I am doubling down on this. I am very confident that he who began, who is he, God, began a good work in you, will perfect it. That has the idea of bringing it to completion. Will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, that is a very important thing to remember for us as believers, that we are a work in progress. That verse isn't saying that, oh, as a Christian, you're going to be perfect. No. It's saying, I'm confident that God is at work in you, and he began this work in you, and you know what? He's going to bring it to conclusion one day. He will perfect it. He will mature it, is the idea. I heard a story of a rowdy Sunday school kid, very disruptive young boy in Sunday school class. And week after week, it just wouldn't stop. And, you know, they'd send him up to the parents, and the parents would send him back down. And he just continued. And it, it continually frustrated his Sunday school teacher. Well, one morning, the teacher just lost it. And the kid was being obnoxious in class. And she just blurted out, why do you act like that? Don't you know who made you? And the boy quietly replied, Sure, God did. But you know what? He ain't through with me yet. (laughs) That may be a smart aleck comment, but it's biblically a very true comment. Right? God isn't through with any of us yet. We're all still in a state of imperfection. We're uncut diamonds being finished by the divine master craftsman. That should give us hope. 
He's not finished with this, yes, but his work will not cease until he has made us into the perfect likeness of his Son. That's what 1 John 3, 2 says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be, what we will be, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, listen, we shall be like him, speaking of Christ, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, that should give us motivation to live a holy life each and every day. Because God is saying, look, the, the work that I began in you, I am continuing it. And I am not going to give up until you're like my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, found in his likeness. And so when we're down and when we fail and when we sin and we falter and we doubt God, the next day is a new day. Because you know what? God's still working. He's not done with us yet. We can confess that sin and acknowledge his forgiveness and press on. That should motivate us to want to know the Lord more intimately. It should give us a desire to spend more time with him. You know, if if you were on a sports team... And maybe you had a practice and the practice didn't go well. And all the coach did was berate you at the end of the practice, embarrass you in front of the players, tell you that you were no good, why are you even on the team? You're worthless, you're not worth that uniform. Why don't you just quit? If that was the coach's approach, guess what? The next time that person shows up for practice, they're not going to have a lot of confidence. As a matter of fact, they're probably not going to show up for confidence. They're probably going to quit. And that's not what coaches do. What do coaches do? Coaches come along players, at least good coaches, and they get down beside them and they say, look, you had a horrible game today. I get it. But you know what? Next game's a new game. I believe in you. I know you got some talent may not be the greatest talent, but you know what? If you're willing to work hard, I'm willing to work with you. And let's try to make this next game or this next practice better than the, the one before it. See, that will motivate someone. That's showing that player that the coach hasn't given up on them. And that's what, what this verse is saying here. It's like, yeah, we're God's children now, and guess what? He's going to continue to make us like his son until we are like his son, period. doesn't come what doesn't matter what comes down the pike. It's irrelevant. doesn't matter what happens in your life. God is not going to give up on you. That should motivate us to desire that, that intimate relationship with Christ. It's a story of a famous actor who was a guest in a big uh, home of a well-known politician. And this actor had performed on Broadway. He's very well known for his voice, and it just, you know, made your ears melt. He just had an incredible voice. Rich baritone. And he was known to get in front of people and recite various things, and people would just listen and just take it all in. Well, he was there at this gathering of this politician at his home, and there was a local preacher there who was a real old guy he was there as well they invited him as the local preacher to be at this social event and they were both talking and somebody third party in the conversation there they asked the actor could you recite the 23rd psalm for everybody here tonight so the actor said sure I, I could do that but I only do it on one condition that the pastor read the psalm as well. So here the pastor kind of thought, okay, whatever. So the the actor agreed on that condition, and the actor gets up in front of everybody, and boy, all the lights were dimmed and focused on him, and he gets up in front of everybody, and he begins his recitation of the 23rd psalm, and it was beautifully intoned and great dynamic emphasis and pauses just at the right place. 
And at the end, he received incredible applause. People were just overwhelmed with his presentation of the 23rd Psalm. And the actor turned to the the pastor and said, Okay, preacher, your turn. So the preacher came up behind a podium. He pulled out his his, uh, Bible and he set it on the podium, turned to the 23rd Psalm, and he began to read. And you know what? The preacher's voice was rough, kind of hard to listen to. It's actually broken. And it was from all his years of preaching, not only in churches, but out on the street. And his diction and his pronunciation wasn't anything polished like the actor. He didn't pause at the right place. He didn't have that smoothing voice that soothing voice like the the actor did. But you know what? When that pastor finished reading that psalm, the story says there wasn't a dry eye in the place. People were literally weeping at the words they heard. And after it was all over, someone asked the actor, that was kind of different. I mean, your presentation was wonderful, but... Why do you think the people responded to the pastor's reading of Psalm 23 with tears? And the actor, knowing the reason, (laughs) replied this. He says, you have to understand, I know the psalm, but the pastor knows the shepherd. See, it's that kind of intimacy that God wants from us. See, salvation does not come, beloved, from knowing about the truth of Jesus Christ. Just making a mental ascent. Yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins. That's not going to save you. As a matter of fact, the verse we read earlier, the demons know that. Satan knows that. It doesn't save them. Salvation doesn't come from knowing about the truth of Jesus Christ, but from intimately knowing Christ himself. The intimacy of being attached to the vine, being attached to Christ, to abiding in him. And that coming alive, that abiding, can be accomplished by the power of God because of his love, his mercy, his grace. That's how that happens. When you look at this word workmanship in different Bible translations, it's kind of funny how they translate it. It's just, it's neat. I'll read a couple. The ESV obviously says, you are God's workmanship. The NIV says that you are God's handiwork. The Holman translation says that you are God's creation. The New Living Translation says you are God's masterpiece. See, it has the idea that God has spent time on you. It wasn't something he just, yeah, okay, same converse here, I'll create this person. No. He fashioned, he molded. The, The Old Testament in Psalms says that we were knit together in our mother's womb, and, and God spent time designing who we would be. One translation says, God has made us what we are. And that's true. God made you who you are. And he made you what you are. But you know what? The good news is he didn't stop there. He continues. You are his handiwork. And it's a work in progress. Have you ever noticed on your phone or your computer, they're always updating stuff. Certain apps are almost updated weekly, if not daily. There's always some little adjustment, some little fix. It's a never-ending task to keep that app working for all of its users. It reminds me when Star Wars came out. I'm not a real big Star Wars fan, but I remember it coming out in the 70s. 
And I mean, it was lauded as the, the greatest science fiction fantasy film of all time. Nothing could ever surpass this. It was incredible. I mean, they called it a masterpiece. And yet, you know what? George Lucas didn't stop making adjustments all these years later. He continues to adjust this series called Star Wars, starting with the, the title. He determined to make it better. He just didn't say, okay, that was it. And in a way, our Heavenly Father does the same thing. I mean, I want you to know that He is pleased with who you are. He loves you as you are. You are His creation. You're His handiwork. You're His masterpiece. But you're also his work in progress. He hasn't given up. Romans 8.29 says, God created us to become conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus. That's the direction he's taking you in. It's a journey that's going to last your entire life. It's not over in three weeks, or six weeks, or six years, or 60 years. You're a work in progress. The second point here is you're part of God's plan. You're part of God's plan. I'm saying that he has a plan for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now we know specifically this is addressed to the nation of Israel. But we can apply this verse to our lives as Christians. This verse and the promise it contains is absolutely true. You can build your life on that. But I want you to know it's not the entire plan that God has for you. It's not limited just to prosperity and hope. Unfortunately, some in our theological circles today, that's what they focus on, prosperity, health, wealth. But see, his plan also includes the good that you will do. And that's what Paul is saying in today's text. He's saying that we are his workmanship. We are his poimo. We are what he has taken time to craft. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. But look at the next phrase, which God prepared beforehand. See, this poema, this workmanship, is not just a result of effort or labor. It's a result of artistic skill and craftsmanship. I mean, if we could earn salvation by our own good works, we would not be a work of God. But a work of who? A work of ourselves. See, that cannot be and will not be true. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God determined beforehand, before we were ever even born. God has prepared a, a path of good works for believers, for Christians, which he will bring about in and through them while they walk by faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we do a good work for God. That's not what I'm saying. It means that God does a good work through us as we are faithful and obedient to him. See, it's God that is at work here. And in faith, we join him in that work. And guess who gets the glory? God. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul seems to find it necessary to repeat that over and over. He says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, he says it again, to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, to the praise of his glory. See, he doesn't want the believers in Ephesus to think that somehow this work that they're doing is for their glory, that they should be patting themselves on the head. I mean, if you think about it, we were spiritually dead in the object of wrath, of God's wrath. And God, motivated by his love, what did he do? He extended mercy to us. 
and allowed us to be delivered from his wrath by grace through faith. And you know what? God has accomplished that without our help. Therefore, all the good that is done through us will be recognized as his work and not our own. This means that God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life, a direction that he wants you to take, a calling that he wants you to pursue, a job he wants you to perform. You are God's creation, and he loves you as you are. He could not love you more. From the very beginning of this plan, was that you, his plan was that you would fulfill a unique purpose in his kingdom. Some people think, well, I need more of the love of God. There is no more love. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have all the love of God that you're ever going to get. We used to sing a, a, a chorus in church, and it, it went something like, uh, more love, more power, more of you in my life. Well, that's an impossibility. Now, I know what the song is saying, you know, but theologically, that's incorrect. We can have more of the love of God in our life. Now, we can make that love that's there more evident to people. That's true. But he can't give us more. Remember, we talked about this a little bit in week one, that you are God's representative, that you're Christ's ambassador, that you have a role to play in God's plan. Uh, you know, and, and really, the time is, is counting. We're on the clock. You know, it's, it's important to re- remind ourselves. I know in my office I have this great big clock hanging on the wall. I don't know where I got it, but it's, it's got an oak frame around it. It's a nice clock, but it's battery operated, you know, something simple, but it's big. <laughs> and uh, I even remember my grandkids when they came in, wow, that's a big clock, Grandpa. And I, yeah, it is kind of big. But you know what? I like that it's there because it, it continually reminds me that you know what? It's reminded me for 20-some years here at this church that you know what? Time's ticking away. Time is ticking away. It's not just an ornament. It, it serves a purpose. It reminds me that there's a plan for the day. You have things to do. It serves a purpose. And see, so do, so do you. So do I. We serve a purpose. We're God's creation. It's an ongoing, never-ending work in progress, and he's helping us become more like Jesus. He has prepared in advance good things for you and I to do. Well, speaking of clocks, it brings us to the last point here. When it comes to fulfilling your purpose in Christ, I want you to know that you're already on the clock. You're already on the clock. Uh, Another way to say it is you're already on the job. I remember when I was... I think it was just an early teenager, maybe 12 or 13, I can't remember. Um, but maybe even younger than that, my brother Johnny said, you know, you need to get a job. And uh, we had a neighbor lady that lived across the way, and she had a pool. Her name was Mrs. Lewis, and she was one of the high school teachers. And, but she had this nice pool, and we used to go over there once in a while swimming. And he said, you know, I'm going to talk to Mrs. Lewis, see if she could use some help around the house. You know, and it's not like I didn't have enough to do around the property that we had. We were always busy doing something, cutting the grass or whatever. But, you know, my brother said, hey, it's time for you to get a job. So she ta- he talked to Mrs. Lewis, and uh, she invited me over for an interview. And I went over there, and I, th- I even wore my swimming suit thinking, well, maybe she'll let me go swimming while I'm there. She didn't, by the way. But um, it, it, it was interesting because, you know, she asked me, well, what could I do? And I said, well, I'll do whatever you want. You know, I was very you know, immature. I was only 12 or 13. And so she goes, well, and I remember her asking me this question, when can you start, Steve? You know, I'll pay you a buck 50 an hour or whatever it was. It wasn't all a lot, but it was something. Well, um, I can start, you know, whenever you want. And uh, I remember her saying, okay, well, there's a bucket out there in the driveway. Take that bucket and go down to the driveway and start pulling out the weeds. There's, there's weeds in the middle of the road there, and I want them all gone oh, you want me to start right now? And I remember thinking, whoa, wait a minute. I, I didn't plan on that. You know, here I am in my bathing suit, hoping I was going to go swimming or something. And, uh, but I, I said, okay. You know, so I got the thing, went down and pulled the weeds out. And, and, and then uh, I remember 
thinking, well, maybe I'll go swimming afterwards, but she never even offered. So I went home sweaty, but at least I got paid. And I started, and I remember thinking, wow, I'm already on the clock. You know, it, it started already. You know, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And that's what it means to our Heavenly Father, too, that he has a job for us to do. And you know what? He wants us to start right away. He doesn't want us to sit on our hands. He doesn't want us to wait. And that's why he says there, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, what? That we should walk in them. Start walking right away. Start doing it right away. The Berean Bible study says this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Listen, which God prepared in advance as our way of life. As our way of life. See, Christianity isn't a spectator sport. He planned good works that we should walk in them. That we should take them on as our way of life. My favorite description of the life of Jesus is found in a sermon by the Apostle Peter. It's in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. I think it it just really describes the life of Christ in a wonderful way. And I have missed it for so many years. But listen, it says, Peter's talking about Christ, and he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then he says this, and he went about doing good, (laughs) describing the life of Christ and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. But I love that little phrase. He just went about doing good. There's so much more to say about the life of Christ. But that one little phrase sums it all up. He went about the earth doing good. See, and God intends us to become imitators of Christ. We are to be conformed to his image. We're to do the works that he did. In other words, we're to go about this earth doing good things for the Lord as he works through us. You know, in this current time and season, we may be locked down. We may be unable to go out and do the things that we want to do whenever we want to do. But wherever you are, you still have the chance to do good. You can make the load lighter for those who are near you. Maybe you can send an email or make a phone call or even have a personal conversation from a distance. You know, we've got to do the social distancing thing, right? But there's good that you can do, even today, in these circumstances, in the uncertainty, in the turmoil that's all around us. See, never let us forget that we're still on the clock, we're still on the job. There are some who seek God's purpose for their life as a, if it's a map or a blueprint or a a detailed script. And while there's a big picture to God's plan for your life, You cannot lose sight of the fact that the greatest part of God's plan is found in the answer to the simple question. Two simple questions, really. A couple questions. What good thing can I do today? What good thing can I do in this moment? How can I bring Christ into this conversation? How can I demonstrate his mercy or his grace or his love in this situation? What good thing can I do? See, God's plan for your life doesn't wait to begin somewhere down the road. After graduation or after marriage or after you get the next job. Or even after this quarantine ends, right? God's plan for your life includes today. It begins now. You're already on the clock. So as a church, as a people of God, let's roll up our shirt sleeves and put on our apron and get busy doing good. The good of the Lord in every opportunity. You remember I began this series with this little story about a lady by the name of Sarah Jane Olson. She was a fugitive um, for more than 20 years. She was hiding from her criminal past, pretending to be someone else, someone she wasn't. And today I want to end this series with the story of another Sarah, Sarah Culberson. See, Sarah was born in 1976 in West Virginia and was soon placed in foster care. 
After a year, she was adopted into a loving family, and both her parents were local teachers. And she grew up in an active Christian home, United Methodist Church. And she had always wondered about her heritage. And after graduating from college, she finally had the resources to hire a private investigator to find her biological parents. And her mom, she discovered, had died of cancer in the early 90s. But it was what she learned about her father that changed her life forever. See, as it turns out, Sarah wasn't just a young woman from West Virginia. She was royalty. She was a princess. Her father was now a ruling member of the Mendy tribe in Sierra Leone. And they began to correspond, and soon he invited her to Africa to meet her family of origin. And she arrived, and she received a royal welcome. Hundreds of people came to greet her. And she kept asking herself, what did I do to deserve this? I'm just Sarah from West Virginia. But she's not just Sarah from West Virginia. In Sierra Leone, she's Princess Esther Elizabeth. And she had lived her life not knowing that she was part of a ruling class, a princess in disguise, if you will. She didn't know who she really was until she discovered her true heritage. Today, she lives an amazing life, by the way. You can look her up on the internet. She works in education. She's a public speaker. She maintains close ties to her community in Sierra Leone and both of her families. And I, I love that story because it's similar to our story. There are many believers who never fully grasp who they are in Christ. And we too have a royal heritage. We are children of the king. We're king's kids. Sometimes we relate more to the other Sarah, the fugitive the one with so much to hide. But our Father wants you to know you're no longer a fugitive with a past to live down. You're royalty with a future to live up to. Your life is no longer about the person you used to be. Your life is now about the person God is making you to be. You are a new creation, set apart, set free from the past. This is your position in Christ. You're more than a conqueror, empowered to live a victorious life. This is your potential in Christ. You have opportunity to be like Jesus, to go around doing good, bringing glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is your purpose in Christ. The question is, when can you start? I pray you make it soon. Because you know what? You're already on the clock. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless the truths of this series to our heart and our lives. Help us to apply them. Help us to live each day knowing your purpose, your plan for us, our potential, our position in Christ. We ask that you'd, by your grace, just give us a good remainder of the week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.